0: This podcast does not replace the need for consultation with a licensed professional and no information should be relied upon unless you have obtained specific advice or treatment from myself or another physician. Please review the terms and conditions located at www.weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca before continuing. Welcome to episode 137 of the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Siobhan Key. Thank you for joining me today. All right, I have a fantastic episode for you today. I have Dr. Sarah Dill and Dr. Sunny Smith joining me, and we are talking about what happens when you as a physician have long-term health concerns or chronic pain or other chronic health conditions. And I think this is such an important topic because we as the physicians are not immune to health concerns, but often we make them mean something. We sometimes make them mean something about ourselves. Sometimes we think we shouldn't have gotten illness. We also can make it mean things about how we run our lives and whether or not we actually take the time needed to care for ourselves. And when we talk about, from a weight loss standpoint, chronic illness or chronic pain and everything that's wrapped up with it can drive a lot of eating you know if you're not physically feeling well or if you're in pain it's really easy to turn to food to manage that so in this episode we are talking about how can you approach it if you are a physician who lives with some form of chronic illness or chronic pain uh, this episode is for you Even if you do not have a chronic illness, I think this is a really, really important episode to listen to because there are things you will take away just for a normal life as a physician, but useful to have these tools in case something happens down the road. And the reality is, as we get older, there's a good chance that something will happen to you if you haven't had illness experience yet. So without further ado, let's get to the interview with Dr. Dill and Dr. Smith. Welcome to the podcast, Sunny and Sarah. Thank you so much for joining me again. Thank
1: you. Do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Sarah Dill. I'm a practicing dermatologist and pediatric dermatologist. I'm also a life coach and weight loss coach. I also teach mindfulness-based stress reduction, And I'm super interested in the topic today because I've had my own share of some interesting health problems that have come and gone that I've really worked through with some of these approaches of coaching and mindfulness.
0: And Sunny, can you introduce yourself to everybody? Yes, of
2: course. So I am Dr. Sunny Smith. I'm a family physician. I'm a clinical professor of family medicine and public health at the University of California San Diego School of Medicine. Interestingly, that appointment is actually going to expire this month, and I will likely choose to become voluntary there because I am focusing most of my, if not all of my attention on being the founder and CEO of Empowering Women Physicians, which is a coaching company and Facebook group and lots of amazing things that I love doing.
0: Awesome. And so today, this is a special episode in that we're talking about what to do if you're a physician and you have some form of illness, like more probably we're talking chronic illnesses or chronic pain how do you cope with it and manage it when you as a physician, the healer, have something that you can't heal, I think is the main question. And I think it's such a good question because honestly, I think as physicians, we don't often talk about our own illnesses and our own struggles. And it'll be interesting because I think we all have experience with having some form of illness or injury and it's something that usually you don't talk about with other people and you kind of have, in general as physicians, we have high expectations of what we should continue to do even when we're maybe not feeling our best or when we're struggling with something. So let's start by kind of talking about our personal experience and then we can get into approaches to manage it. So Sarah, do you want to
1: start with your experience with illness? Sure. And this was something, I forget it came up when we were chatting online or something, but the thing that really... I sort of come back to and that I've worked through a few times is when I was, I was a really stressed out junior faculty member. I wasn't very happy. I wasn't happy at work and I wasn't happy in my personal life. And I was coping the way I always did, which was just to work harder and to keep going to work and to do all the things and to like hold it together. And I woke up one morning and my eye, one of my eyes felt sort of like as if you jabbed it with a mascara wand. It was sort of scratchy and sore and irritated, like the actual globe and a little bit sensitive to light. And I just remember thinking like, oh, I must have like scratched it or traumatized it. And so I went to work, I had to squint out of like one of my eyes, because of course, the, the irony of being a dermatologist where I need my vision only became clear later. And it got worse and worse to the point where I literally couldn't open that eye at all. And I was like, didn't want to go see anyone, right? I was just going to keep pushing through, but I literally couldn't do my job. Right. And I remember thinking, well, I, I don't want to cause any patients harm, right? That's always, I think, in a lot of my coaching of physicians, like that's the point where we seek help is when we're worried that it might impact other people. But when it's just impacting us, a lot of our coping skills are just to push on. And so I ended up seeing someone, and I had a very unusual, strange, rare autoimmune eye disease. And Luckily, it was pretty easily treated with high potency topical steroids. But of course, I got the whole workup for autoimmune disease. And it's interesting because I've had it episodically ever since. I haven't had it for about five years now. And I consider it my like canary in the coal mine. That and insomnia are my two things that crop up when I'm not managing my stress, when I'm maybe overworking, like overdoing things at my own expense. And so working through that and then through coaching and through weight loss, I think a lot of us have this idea that somehow it's our body versus us, right? That we feel like our body's letting us down. And maybe that's something we'll touch on later. But I always really like to wonder, like, what if it's my body? desperately trying to get my attention. And for so many of us, sometimes pain or chronic illness, not that we have brought it on ourselves in any way, like not blaming, but it's often like, what if our body's on the same team and it's just desperately trying to help us, right? So I sort of see it that way. But that was really the thing that popped up for me the most. I mean, there's been other little things, but that's the one that I, I literally keep an eye out for. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think that's such a great way to look at it. And I, I think so true and I can speak to it later, but Sunny, what about you? What's your personal experience been?
2: Oh my goodness. I have so many. I feel like <laughs> I <have> a plethora <laughs> of experiences of being human, right? And that's really all this is, is that we're human. And every single possible thing that can affect the human condition will affect humans and physicians, right? Like I learned that in part as an advisor to medical students. Cause when you supervise hundreds of medical students, it's like, oh, there's going to be people who have their parents die, who break their own bones, who get their own cancer, who like all of these things It's sort of a volume issue. And so I would tell them, you know, you're human too. And then when I think of my own, experiences with this, I would say, I mean, I was super young, healthy, amazing, like no problem medical student, like many of us were, right? We're bright eyed and bushy tailed when we come in, we're like full of compassion, the desire to serve. We study our buns off, we'll do anything all night long. And sort of my first sign that I was in some kind of distress was when I went into the It was like step one is often where statistically speaking across the country, right? US and Canada where medical students for the first time start to notice their mental health is really not well. So that was my first time that I ever thought life wasn't worth living was during that time and then into my surgical rotation. And that is a mental health, like that's a physical health issue. It's not anything separate from your physical health because your brain is an organ, right? And it dysfunctions when you deprive it of certain things. So that got better when I wasn't on my surgery rotation anymore, but it was really, I was pretty scared and thinking about, I was telling my friends every morning who were on the surgery rotation with me at five in the morning, when we'd round, I'd be like, I'm going to the psychiatric emergency room today. And they'd be like, ha ha ha. I'm like, I'm not kidding. I'm going today. I can't make it. I can't make it through today, period. I know I won't make it. And then as the day wears on and you do your rounds and you go to lunch and stuff, you're like, fine, I can make it another day. And then you wake up again and you're like, I can't do it today. And for me, I'd worked, all of us had worked so hard to get to that point in our life to have my first rotation be absolutely the antithesis of what I thought medicine would be, right? I thought it would be like healing and connecting. And you had this like Norman Rockwell picture of what it's going to be like. And it's actually not really like that, (laughs) right? So that disconnect, that's, that's sort of the moral injury they talk about, right? It's like what they teach you versus what you have to do. It's very different then I got better. And then the next time that my health became like a major issue and you talked about how people often don't talk about it, I was actually being filmed. I didn't audition for it. It just happened that I went to my internship in Los Angeles. There's a lot of filming there. So I was being filmed for a documentary that ended up airing all across the planet called The Residence. And in that, I started developing rare neurologic symptoms. And at first the doctor thought that. Maybe like the neurologist, I think, had the idea that maybe I was a hysterical woman or had anxiety or a wandering uterus, as they say, right? <laughs> Hysteria. and um, <laughs> But I knew that there was something wrong. Like I, I got complete expressive aphasia while I was seeing patients at Cedar sinai and went down to the emergency department. I'm, I'm like, fum, fum, blah, hmm, blah, blah, blah. You know, they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, (laughs) and so all kinds of tests, all kinds of stuff. And they're like, well, we don't know what this is. Maybe it's atypical migraine. And then it only eventually showed itself when I had a seizure. We learned that they were focal seizures with hindsight, that I had a uh, generalized seizure, status epilepticus, and I was in a coma for a week. They didn't know if I'd ever wake up. It was very dramatic. They didn't know if I ever woke up, if I would be the same. And again, I could not be private about that at all because everyone in all the hospitals had to know everyone had to cover for me. People literally resented me because they had to cover my (laughs) shifts like intubated. Sorry. So then there was the recovery for that and all of of the things that came with it. And the reason that they resented me is not because they have no humanity is that they were at the edge of their rope too. And so adding on one person's extra shift was just too much, right? We don't have a deep bench in medicine. And then just the only other significant episodes that have come up for me was I was, I then got well, I was in attending. I just decided I would stop taking call. That would be how I would deal with my seizure issue. Um, So I never took calls in attending. And then I got in a bicycle accident where I wasn't able to do anything I broke my arms my face couldn't care for myself at all at all at all couldn't feed myself couldn't wipe myself couldn't shower myself nothing and so that was very humbling as well and to step down I have so much to say about this I could go on for hours I, sh- I should wrap it up for you but um <laughs> what I learned from that is that all the things I thought I had to do like every day I was working myself into the ground because only I could do these things only I could write the letters only I could do the charts only I could Every single thing, right? As medical director, community director, mom, I had to do the driving, right? No, I didn't. I just didn't know that I didn't because when I stopped doing it, the world kept going around. So that's actually when I found coaching. And as I got better, I started realizing everything is optional. Everything, right? I had opted out unintentionally, which, as Sarah says, like it's often you work harder until you can't do it at all. And then you realize your patients are at risk, right? That's when you have to stop. So, like, I couldn't do the things. I would try to go do things and I couldn't. So then I started to say, okay, what do I want to do? What what do I want to put back into my life on purpose? I still have some residual effects. Like I have POTS, positional orthostatic tachycardia syndrome that I never had before the accident. So I can't stand very long. So I have to be mindful of what I do and how I spend my time with that. And then mental health issues where it became an, an issue for me again. and. So this coma that I mentioned was also is recently something that is also a very public thing because it's on Amazon Prime right now that you can see me intubated in a coma. So I feel like in terms of the shame of not talking about it, like I'm just like that has not even been an option for me to not talk about it because it's it's been a very public thing, and I think it's it's actually been now very empowering for me and others. I think to speak about what your truth is. There's the facts, and then there's the thoughts and the shame and the hiding and the denying and the arguing and the resisting. And I think just being like, yes, I am on antidepressants and they help me a lot, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I could choose to go off them anytime I want, but I don't want to. Yes, I have these various physical limitations and they're real and I can choose whatever I want. Yeah, some people are irritated with me that I can't work like I used to, but that's on them. That's not on me. So that was a long introduction to my physical health issues, and you can ask me any questions about any one of them.
0: Some really good points there, like the point of realizing, like you being forced to realize that you didn't actually have to do it all, I think is huge. And as women physicians, if we had more opportunity to realize we didn't have to do it all. And there there there's sometimes alternative ways and it still gets done. Like I think we so often think if we're not doing it, then it doesn't get done or it then burdens somebody else. But those are just two options, right? Like there's other options of how it can work. I think is fantastic. And if you can open yourself up to that, and I think if anybody's listening who is struggling with a chronic illness and is feeling overwhelmed by the things they can do, if they can take that thing away of like, how else could this work still get done? How could I make this easier on myself? It would be like life-changing, just that shift in thinking.
2: Yeah, I think there was some wisdom in there, of course, that you said, which is either I have to do it or I have to burden someone else. And that's very much this either or black or white, like no alternative, nowhere in between and no upside to either one of those options. Either I have to do it or... It's going to burden someone else. And one thing that I found as I have stepped down from many, many positions at the university, because as I said, I was completely overworked, not only are people not burdened, that was my thought at first, but other people have been able to rise, right? And like they get new opportunities. Like when I decide I'm going to do everything, that leaves no room for other people to rise to their strengths. And even if it's just in the office, because your people are probably largely clinicians. Right. And so like, if you're not just burdening someone else in your office, it's like, what could the MA do as like own as her project? Wouldn't it be amazing if you could own blah, 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 refill project or blah, 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 patient satisfaction project, or like, what are the things that it would be amazing for someone else to do? And if we choose not to do our own housekeeping, we're offering a good living, right? Like a hardworking person gets an opportunity to feed their family, right? So it's not either we do it or it's a burden on someone or we're not good enough. It's we can choose. And just because we can, doesn't mean we have to, right? What do we want to continue to choose? And what do we want to allow the other humans to have the opportunity to earn their living doing or to rise up and see themselves as leaders? Or even we feel obligated to stay on committees. If you step down, that's an open seat. Someone else is going to take it. Right, you don't have to do all the things. Chances are your listeners are all like A plus all the time, like always doing all the things. Right, they have to be the perfect mom, the perfect doctor, the perfect house, the perfect car, the perfect clothes, the perfect like. Come on, it's ridiculous. <laughs> so, those are my thoughts. It's tiring. This is what it is. Tiring. It's exhausting. Here, one thing I have found is that exhaustion for me and many of the people that I work with tends to be arguing with reality. It's like, don't argue with whatever doctor you are. You're like, that's the doctor you are, right? Like whatever mom you are, that's the perfect mom for right now, right? It's exhausting to think it should be any other way.
1: Absolutely. I think too, arguing with reality goes back to chronic illness too. I think so much of the there's the clean pain this is Sarah um, there's the clean pain of the illness or literally of chronic pain and then there's all our other thoughts about it what we make it mean about us what we make it mean about our ability to be of service or to show up the way we want to and then we argue that we shouldn't have it right all of the like not just acknowledging like this is where I am that idea and I just wanted to tag team one thing sunny with what you were saying about the idea of I always like the thought like if it doesn't light you up you're probably the wrong person for the job because what I consider a burden, someone else doesn't. Like my tax guy, the whole tax stuff, like, oh my I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to do my part, right? A little bit. I guess I don't even have to do my part, right? I could pay someone else, but I want to do my part. And then he loves his part. I love him. I love paying him to do that, right? He gets so excited about all of it. Same thing with just like even people without chronic illness. Like, what are the parts of your life or your job or your work that you feel like you sort of have to do that you would prefer not to do? There are people who want to do that, like literally. It's crazy.
0: And, you know, along the same lines, what are the things that are there? this came up in a coaching call in my groups just the other night of what are those things on the to-do list that nobody actually has to do right like there's often so many things on the list that we drag forward we never do and it creates that chronic burden that then can worsen different health conditions that maybe nobody has to do maybe it hasn't gotten done because it's not important and it can just be let go too.
2: And I think there's a, a reframe from my own experience where I thought this was the most terrible thing that happened to me was this sudden having to stop and not being able to stand or walk or anything. And I really, and I, I think your listeners who have chronic illness or illness of any kind, I know it seems like positivity or maybe toxic positivity or unrealistic. But in all sincerity, when your body reminds you that you too are human, which we don't think about very often because we're so capable and we're so smart and we know how to work so hard, that when it reminds you of that and you have to pause, you like absolutely, you must pause. Then you get to reflect, what does this mean? What is this here to teach me? There really are lessons in there if we stop shooting and blaming and shaming and be like, Wow. And for some people, it just happens when they have, again, they break one arm and so they can't do some of the things that they do, right? Or whatever that chronic illness is for them. But people often say, right, whether it's cancer, something with a loved one, like these moments are what remind us how incredibly precious and fleeting this gift of life is. So it doesn't feel that way when you have some kind of chronic illness that's eating at you or some back pain or whatever, but it's like, what is the gift in here if I slow down for a moment and just listen to what the universe is trying to tell me? I think there's a lot of wisdom in that it really can be a gift.
0: And I think it's um, for the people that think, oh, that's just too much positivity. It's important to note that the purpose of changing your thought in that is not to like think that the chronic illness is fantastic. But it's to remove some of the additional pain that your thoughts, like what you were talking about, Sarah, that those extra thoughts are adding to the kind of core of the illness or the situation that you're in. And a question like that, like, what's the gift or why is this happening for me, can be a really powerful way to, to shift.
2: And Sarah said that it was like, it's her canary in the coal mine. Like if all of us have chronic disease, if we have back pain, if we have neck pain, if whatever that, if we have problems with our sugar, Okay if this is the canary in the coal mine to help me stay mindful of where I am and how I'm doing, I think that's a gift.
1: Yeah. And I was going to say, sometimes I like to phrase it. Sometimes if I did believe it, there was a gift in here, what might it be? It doesn't mean you even have to go there. You're just like cracking the door open to wondering, could I find it? Right. Because we're storytellers. That's what we do right we get to create the narrative we totally don't have to decide that we love it that we're excited that we're like yay nothing better right than this and yet we get to decide what meaning we want or what value we want and i really like the idea that the more i tune into my body and this is relevant for weight loss for hunger skills for like knowing when you're tired right like a lot of us don't even know we're so disconnected creeping back into the body and reconnecting, my body doesn't have to yell at me anymore, right? Like I can hear the whispers. It doesn't have to like be so intense sometimes. And then other things are accidents, right? Or other things that maybe aren't chronic or whatever. So it's not always applicable, but sometimes there's an invitation just to explore it and see.
2: I think that's just reminding me, Sarah, as you were talking, we did an orientation call earlier this week. In my program where a lot of people, I brought on all the coaches that work with us. And I said, what brought you to coaching? Like, what's the role of coaching in your life? Obviously, it was incredibly meaningful because all the people trained like we did to go on to be coaches. And I can't tell you how many, I almost want to say every one of them or nine out of 10 or something, said it was their weight that brought them to coaching. Like, you would never know now meeting them and knowing what they coach on and what they advocate for. When I said, what brought you to coaching? What's your journey? So I think for Siobhan, your audience in particular, when we talk about tune into your body and what is this sort of, what's the whisper? What's the invitation? I was really surprised actually to learn how many of the women, particularly probably because in our society, there's so much shame about being and so much judgment about being overweight or obese. That, and particularly as women, we don't want to be that. So that is a pain point that is big enough to make us get in action. And then what it really uncovers is what's underneath it. Why and what do we want to be thinking and feeling and how are we in charge of that and not the chocolate cookie or whatever, right? That was very, I think, meaningful and, and revealing to me in a way that I've never experienced before this week is that the women who are leading the coaching movement right now are people who came into it because of their own weight struggles. Phenomenal
0: and fascinating. Yeah, and I think it's like a good demonstration of how you come into it thinking there's just this little thing that needs to be fixed. Like, oh, I just need to lose Mm -hmm. weight. right?" Right. And then when you take a good approach, like you're using a coaching approach or looking at your thoughts and looking at all the foundational reasons as to why that's there. And we can apply this to any, like any illness that has influences from stress and stuff. Then all of a sudden, all those other things, you start to realize, okay, what, it's not actually a weight issue. It's, I never give myself any time at all during the day at all until like 8 p.m. when the kids are in bed. And then I only have energy to have a snack as myself, right? Like it becomes a bigger issue that once you know what it is, then it becomes so much easier to fix instead of just thinking, it's just, I can't control myself around food because I always eat at 8 p.m. And why don't I just stop that when you actually figure out and take this different approach? And I think that's true for, like Sarah, you said, like your eye that's influenced by stress. And my big sort of weird chronic thing was years ago, when my kids were still quite little, I developed a chronic urticaria and angioedema. So all of a sudden, my face started just swelling up on me and couldn't figure it out. Thought it was different allergies. Like, you know, all the classic stuff that we go through, right? And ultimately now I think it's stress. Like if I'm sleep deprived, if I'm like emotionally stressed, like if something big happens, I get hives. Luckily I don't get the angioedema anymore but because that was quite, a, quite an experience in its own right. I started thinking the hives were the issue. And now kind of what you were saying, Sarah, is I've been able to reframe it of like, it's not so much the hives are the issue. It's the fact that I've been like totally spinning around some sort of stressor for days and beating myself up and (laughs) saying horrible stuff to me about something. And this is what my body does to say, hey, we don't like it. Stop. I actually had, now that you bring that up,
2: like I'm sure we all have many things that we haven't mentioned because we're just human. So we have all the things, but I actually also had chronic idiopathic urticaria when I moved here and I was very stressed. And as you said, you look and you do all the things. Like I moved out to a hotel, I bought all new clothes. I like did everything I possibly could because I was sure it was an allergy to something, right? I went to the allergist, they put me on steroids. They wanted to put me on transplant immunosuppressants. And you are absolutely right that we kept looking and it was clearly a sign of a lot of stress and distress. And when those things were improved, it would, I would look like a whole new person, right? I wasn't covered in inexplicable blotchy hives. And I think if our job is to be the steward of this vessel while on the planet of our body, if we are gifted, this is the vessel that you have care for it the best you can, right? Then when our bodies start acting up like that, if our number one focus was caring for this vessel, I think it wouldn't be just keep working and serving others and just keep, when you can't see out of one eye, try and look at people's skin. It would be like, I really do have to care for this vessel that is trying to tell me some things. And even if you can't, if it's not a disease that will go away with decreased stress, it's still... Your body deserves your attention, and we just are not trained that way. We are trained in medicine. Your body does not deserve your attention. Let's just train you how to ignore what your body is telling you. Have to pee? Hold it longer. Hungry? 12-hour surgery. You need lunch? Hail to the no right? Like my husband does not understand that doctors don't get lunch. It does not make any sense to him. He's like, I don't understand. <laughs> like, it, we just don't. It's not a thing, right? But that is so enculturated yeah. into us. And so we yeah, have to didn't retrain. Sleep. Yeah, no sleep, nothing. We have to retrain. We have to like purposely do this neuroplasticity type of exercise where we're like, I have trained my brain and it has been honed. And Malcolm Gladwell says 10,000 hours, right? You get expert at something. Well, we are way more than 10,000 hours into ignoring our bodies and our body's needs. And so now it's just time to say, that's enough. That got me here. That's fine. Thank you. Right, Such a good point. Getting me here. And now we're going to get back in touch with what I really need.
0: So funny. Like I remember similar to Sarah, your story about trying to work without being able to see the skin. The first time my face really swolled up, I um, had been in eMERGE till late. And then I had to get up early and it had started as I finished my eMERGE shift. I was like, my lip was starting to do this. And then like this whole, it was was like comic bottom of my face was all swollen by the time I woke up in the morning. And I'm like, I have to round, like I have to go see inpatients and then I have to get to the office. I don't have time for this. And so I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to stop by eMERGE because I worked in eMERGE. So I knew people. I'm like, I'm just going to see if somebody will just give me some prednisone quickly to like just deal with this so I can keep going. And so I go to emerge, and then I'm seeing a friend who I did residency with, and I'm like doing this, like, <laughs> <laughs> like it's, it's like swelling at the back of my throat. I'm like <laughs> like a cat with a hairball, and I'm, she's like, "Oh, have you taken Benadryl?" I'm like, "Oh no, like because I have to work, <laughs> like, I have to get to do inpatients." I'm willing. To I don't let want my to be Obstruct. <laughs> like that's the risk <laughs> I'm willing to take. I'll let my airway obstruct because I got some work to do. Right? I know. and she she's like, okay. I just want to tell you, my medical opinion <laughs> is that you need to have some Benadryl. And I was like, I wanted to argue with her, and then I'm like, okay, got it. Okay, I will get somebody else to round. Yes. <laughs> it's so funny. Like that mindset. Like I remember that just so. Well, I got to get the work done. It's similar to kind of what you were saying. You were forced to give up. Sunny is. Like, if I don't do this, who else? Or I can't possibly burden somebody else to round on some inpatients or cancel patients because my airway is swelling and my face looks unrecognizable. <laughs> like, I don't know what I thought I was going to do. It would have been scary for patients. I would have, like, been drooling out <laughs> <up> on
1: <side. laughs> We're nodding. For anyone listening to the audio, both of us are nodding in recognition. So, um, I so know. Funny.
2: And I find I, when we see patients in that space, we're very resentful of the patients, right? Because when we are not well, we are just, and we continue pushing and pushing and pushing, and someone comes in for like a sore toe or like mm-hmm. something, we're like, cry me a river. It's like we lose all our empathy and compassion. We're like, do you even know what I am going on right now? <laughs> right? It's like yeah, when you're like such, tired, all you can think about <laughs> is drinking. So when you're suffering, all you can think about is stopping your own suffering and you t- you can't pay attention to the other people.
0: Which I think that's a great lead into, like, if we start talking about like, okay, if something's going on and somebody has something chronic, how, how do you work or use your thoughts to make it more tolerable? Obviously, your thoughts can't fix a chronic illness, though. As we've talked about, changing your stress levels can influence it for sure. That, that concept I've found, my other issue I had last year, yeah, it's horrible back pain. And I really paid attention and that desire to escape the reality that you're in, I think creates a lot of additional harm when you have a chronic illness. And you guys have kind of mentioned this already, that arguing with reality, but that, that urge to escape, like when you're in pain, to be like, I just need to get away from this pain but then the pain doesn't actually ever go away. There is no escape. It creates a huge amount of stress and distress in that setting.
2: I think Sarah is like the expert at thought work, <laughs> like in so many ways, like she's been so well-trained in so many places. And every time you give reflections on how your thoughts can affect how you manage your mind around circumstances, I always think it's incredibly useful. So I'm just going to say that and then invite no, thank <laughs> you. Invite your reflection before I speak.
1: I did this training with Byron Katie, who's in the sort of coaching world and spiritual world, and she's fascinating. And then in mindfulness, too, a lot of the work, one, I always would start with the dropping the sort of secondary harm, right? Dropping the argument with reality. And it may just start by saying, like, this is really hard. I'm really uncomfortable right now. I really wish this would stop. Just allowing yourself to be in that space, not think I should just power through, but it's a different tone of like, this is hard versus like resenting it or like really sort of arguing against it. It's an allowing the experience to be as it is right now in the moment. But I would also notice, how do I think about it? And is that making the problem worse? It's sort of like in yoga, you've ever done yoga and the teacher's like, you might notice some increased sensation in certain parts of your body, right? They don't call it pain or discomfort. They call it sensations, intense sensations. Intense sensations as a phrase for me is less sort of triggering and has less baggage than pain, right? So you sometimes can explore what am I actually experiencing right now? Where do I notice it, right? Then we think like, this is unbearable. I just can't stand this. Those thoughts also amp up the volume because it's, again, resisting it, which generally, just like with urges, it gives them a lot more power, right? It makes it a lot more intense. There's a lot more drama about it. Then you can notice, is your brain making it worse by like going to like futurizing? I can't stand if this is going to be my reality for the rest of my life, right? Even with the chronic condition, it can wax and wane. So I think always starting with like allowing and acknowledging, maybe exploring how you're thinking about it? All the other things, are you like, thinking about how it's going to be in the future? And maybe you might notice right now, you might not be in so much pain, right? We think I've been in pain for five years. Is that true? Have there been any moments where you weren't in pain? What about when you sleep? Is that a little respite? Right? So it's sort of de-dramatizing it a little bit, but in a very kind way, right? Not like ever feeling like we're beating ourselves up for it or making ourselves wrong. We're just exploring it a little bit. So that's sort of where I would start, I think, and looking at thought work, right? Thought work isn't going to make it necessarily go away, but can we also choose how we think about it in a way that might decrease some of the intensity and the suffering that we're experiencing about it. Sunny, do you have
2: any additional thoughts on that one? I mean, nothing necessarily needs to be added to the beautiful explanation. It's right. Isn't this what she was just saying is the answer to almost all human suffering, right? Is just allowing, allowing your thoughts to be there, allowing your circumstances to be there. Of course they're there. Of course they're there right now. And as you said, is it true? Is all of it really true 100% of the time? Even just the sometimes is there some respite from this? And what is the real respite? Is you giving yourself respite. That's always available. No matter how much pain we're in, we get to choose what we want to think about that, right? Like even when it's like the most terrible childbirth pain, we're like, it's going to be worth it because I'm going to get a baby. It's going to be worth it because I'm going to get a baby. I can do anything for a minute. I can take it, right? Like it's the, the narrative that we have during that most, when we give the scale one to 10, we usually say 10 is childbirth. But during that time, yes, I mean, I had significant pain, but I was telling myself that this is going to be over soon. This is going to be worth it. It's going to be okay, right? So we always have some control no matter what is going on about how we want to talk about it. As, as Sarah said, we're storytellers, right? This is the human condition. This is culture. This is society. We are storytellers and we are uniquely capable on the planet of all of the universe, of all of the creatures that ever were. We are the only ones with this incredibly magical power and incredibly dangerous power. Right, to tell ourselves the most painful things, right? And as I said, like I was telling myself that life wasn't worth living and I couldn't make it to the end of the day starting in third year, right? Like that's pretty painful, Sonny. Do you want to keep believing that? Or do you want to be like, is that really true? Right? Because it's not really true. Otherwise, I wouldn't have kept living, right? So, so much of what we're telling ourselves of these incredibly painful things, like you could say, my husband is the biggest jerk. I'm not saying that. It could be like, my kid is so terrible. My body is totally dysfunctional. Everything is wrong with it. I hate everything about my job. Really? Then why do you put the key in the ignition today? You probably like getting the paycheck. You probably like like whatever it is we're telling ourselves. There's that wisdom in. Is that really true? Is that really the whole story? Is there some part of that that's not true that we could shite? So what I've been doing is saying this exercise, this compassionate self forgiveness exercise, which is deep breath when we're upset, noticing my emotions, noticing my emotions are because of whatever I'm telling myself. And then I say, I forgive myself for telling myself the story that blank, fill in the blank. I forgive myself for telling the story that I'm not a good mom. I forgive myself for telling myself the story I should have worked harder. I forgive myself for whatever that is telling yourself. And sometimes I say the BS story Forgive myself for telling myself the BS story that blah, blah, blah. And then I say, and the truth is. And it's usually the opposite. Cultivating that compassion for yourself. And I find it's like it's the words you would say to your friend. Right. Like you brought up a scenario where your friend's like, mm, you really need some Ben drill. <laughs> You need to kind of calm down and stop working, right? The compassionate self-forgiveness is often the words that would come so easily to the person down the hall from you, right? If there was someone who had whatever health condition and they were at work and they were still trying to work, if they were vomiting and saying, maybe I should just give myself some IV fluids here so I can keep working, you'd be like, "Um, maybe you should go home. So it's just learning to talk to ourselves as kindly as we do to others because I find our internal dialogue tends to be more like the meanest internet troll you could have ever invented or imagined, like saying the meanest things, like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> why don't you blah, blah, blah? Like, why? Why? But that is a universal experience of many, if not most humans, that we are very hard on ourselves internally in a dialogue that no one else ever hears.
0: Yeah. Or that we would accept from other people no. in general, right? no. Um, uh, When you guys were talking, I was thinking for somebody who has a chronic illness or chronic pain, so much of what our brains get focused on is what can't be done, right? Like I can't do this because of this. I can't. And so a shift of just focusing on, okay, given this situation that I'm in, not arguing with reality, what can I still do? What can my body still do? Because it's even in the most severe illnesses, there's usually still something. If you're able to think those thoughts, there's still something that your body can still do or something that you can still do. And it's by focusing on that, it just shifts that default of your brain, kind of looking at everything you're not doing to, this is what I can still do today. And I think that can be very powerful. And I find it that, this is speaking from experience when my back pain was really bad, is even from a moment to moment of that focus of like this is what it is right now like i remember being awake in the middle of the night unable to sleep because of the pain and what i started to do was just like okay i have to just focus on this pain because if i wasn't focused it felt like it was like what you were saying sarah it took up the whole it was never getting better and yet when i focused on it and really paid attention to it i could find brief pauses in it that i couldn't see otherwise And for a while, those brief pauses were, they're brief, but they were like relief, right? Like they were at least a pause that I wasn't getting any
1: other place. Yeah, I think that's so true. This is Sarah, is that, right, bringing your attention to a very narrow window of now, just now, right? I don't even have to think about tomorrow, not even going to think about tonight. Like Sunny, when you were getting through those days, right? You're just like, okay, an hour, maybe just a minute. I just have to get through this breath, right? This second. And notice that when we break it down there, we are, right? We already are getting through it, right? We are surviving it. We are standing it. It might not be pleasant, but again, it's usually bearable because we are bearing it in that moment, right? We're sort of telling ourselves, I can't stand it. And yet we are. I also think, I sometimes like to ask, like, what would you tell a patient if they were coming to you with these symptoms? right? You probably wouldn't say like, just get on with your day and work harder, right? So like, if there is a message there, and again, for some chronic diseases, it's not like you're going to not try to like do everything you can to cure it or get rid of it. But like, what might make it better? Right? If you're tired, maybe rest is the answer, right? Right? Like maybe looking at that, what is it? Could it give you a permission slip for? Like, I love Sunny that you very like, right. You're like, I just don't take call. I coach so many people who believe it's impossible for them to be a doctor and not take call. But you're like, no, I literally cannot. Right. So other people could just have that. Like, I have to go to bed. I'm choosing to go to bed at eight. Like my body requires it. Right. It's like writing. I've actually written a prescription for sleep for people right? I mean, I'm a dermatologist. I'm just like, sleep, go to bed by nine o'clock. You should be in bed. Doctor's orders, right? Like, what would you give yourself doctor's orders for if, right, you were listening to the message and you thought it was like actually in your own best interest, right, where it could be helpful. And I also think diversifying our joy and diversifying our pleasure, focusing on parts of the body that don't hurt, that are working, Right. Again, our attention goes to those areas that are not functioning or painful, right? It's natural. But can you notice, like, how do your feet feel right now? Maybe they're fine. Maybe they're cold. I don't know. We don't check in with our feet very often. Maybe they need a little massage, right? There's a lot of other areas we could show kindness to ourselves as well. And same with, like, we were talking about not turning to food necessarily as a way to deal with chronic pain. Can you give yourself a reward in some other way that doesn't have a net negative? that might look like sleep or not doing the house chores or something else. I really like that diversifying your joy because it's so often if
0: illness comes or chronic pain comes and you're used to doing certain things to find joy, like, so for myself, I run. That's a big piece of my life. And then when stuff comes and I can't run, there's that chunk of my self-care and my joy finding that then is missing. And I know lots of people listening have something similar, it might not be running, but- something that they do that when illness comes at me, have kind of taken it away. And so working on diversifying that so that you have other ways of finding that joy, finding that pleasure, having that downtime and that self-care that you can do in kind of different physical capacities, I think is so important.
2: I think when you were talking earlier, this is Sunny, when you were saying there's always something you can do, it reminds me very much of the very real mental construct of palliative care and hospice care, I find that coaching has a lot of overlaps with palliative care and the palliative approach, holding space, right? Just being present in the moment and with hospice care. And no matter the circumstance, there is no circumstance in which a palliative or hospice person would be like, I'm not helping you. There's nothing we could do right? That's just not what we do. So no matter what's going on in our own personal life, no matter how much suffering we have or whatever the condition, there's always something. And it can be holding someone's hand, being present, you know, like whatever those things are in that scenario, sometimes it's morphine, sometimes it's this or that, right? But there's the fact that even in the most dire of human straits, there is always something that could be done to comfort And it's not food, usually. (laughs) Sometimes it can be, but it's usually not, right? So for relevant to this conversation, it's just, there's always something that can be done. And it's always meeting someone right where they are, wherever that is, never expecting them to be anywhere else. Like if you walk into a palliative room and you're like, well, you shouldn't have been smoking all those years. (laughs) That is not helpful. Thank you for your opinion. You can leave right now, right? Whoever walks in and says that, that's a family member who's not really welcome right now, right? Like meeting yourself wherever you are right now and then saying, now what? I think that that's um, very powerful. As you said,
0: you can always do something. Yeah. And yeah, taking that like palliative, that gets at my heart because i not that we're dying, but it's just the most
2: extreme that there's always something that can be done, right? There's always some.
0: yeah, and yeah. that approach of what do you need and what is most yes. important to you right now. Right now. Is, I think, an approach that you're totally right. If you apply it to yourself and your own needs, like imagine that. Oh my gosh.
2: I mean, first of all, all of us would stop going to work right now, probably because we all need a break. <laughs> I mean, we're like a year and something into this pandemic. We're like, what do I need right now? I need a break. Okay, listen, if that's what your mind is offering up right now and you're listening to that, yeah, plan a break. Right? Plan a life that you don't have to escape from during that break. What does that mean to you to live a life you wouldn't need the break from all the time?
1: And I would even encourage how can you find a break right now without changing yes. your job or taking, Ugh. right? Maybe a mini break. Maybe you go like sit outside. I love to sit outside and watch my hummingbirds. Everyone knows like I watch them. They're like aggressive little creatures, but they're so pretty And the (laughs) finches, right? Oh no, who knew they (laughs) are? Right, go outside and look at the sky. Like take a walk, turn your phone off, disconnect. Maybe take a bath. Lock yourself in the bathroom, right? Wherever you can like, what would a little break look like building in, right? In mindfulness, there's actually the idea that small moments, small habits often repeated are actually often much more useful than like big things. So rather than meditating two hours a day, one minute of a mindfulness or check-in or checking in with your body repeated 10 times is way more powerful. So maybe you build in mini breaks, like give yourself, I want you to know I take lunch. Right, I actually leave my office. I go home, walk Who my dog. Who are you? Right? You go eat? home. Who I do. Are you? What is this fantasy <laughs> land that you live right? in, where you give yourself permission to leave the office? And you know, Sunny, it would be more efficient if I stayed and did charts. And I really enjoy it when I go home. I take a brief walk. I get out. Right, I like eat normal food, and then I go back. It's You're possible.
2: A okay, <laughs> it's everyone possible. listening, do what Sarah Dill does. <laughs> it is possible she is an example that this is possible you can leave your office and go home and have a walk and have lunch right it is possible they're like yeah but she's a dermatologist yeah but you have to see a lot of patients too right like dermatology is not a slow-paced hour-long visit per person type of specialty
1: oh my gosh no (laughs) no it's not
0: (laughs) I love it so many good things in this. I would really encourage anybody listening, like listen to it and then come back and listen again. Because I think you'll pick up little subtleties in some of these different techniques that we've talked about. And maybe right now, a certain thought will resonate. And then if you listen to it again, something else is going to resonate. I think there's, we've had a lot of fun, obviously, but there's a lot of wisdom packed into this, this talk. Any last kind of thoughts that you guys want to leave people with? So this is Sunny, I will say
2: for me this past year and even this past few months, it really is an exercise in learning to be your own best friend and stop expecting yourself to be any different than how you are right now, like embrace everything about who you are, how you are. Meeting yourself right here is the key without judgment this is what we have right now. And so I've really learned, like I have a lot, I'm very scatterbrained and last minute. And as a random example, like I tend to buy airplane tickets on the day I'm leaving and that (laughs) drives everyone crazy. And planning ahead is really hard for me for some reason. Like there's some actual problem. I feel like with my executive function, I went and paid for eight hours of neuro, what do they call it? Something assessment you know, the word neurocognitive, whatever, because I was, I was telling myself there was something wrong with my brain and there was something wrong with me and I wasn't doing things right. Right. Who, I'm a full professor. I'm running a business. I'm like, I can't, I need to, and now I'm just like, oh, this is just who I am. It's not actually a problem to fix anymore for me. Like I'm just accommodating my world and teaching those around me. It's fine. I booked my tickets last minute. It's not a problem. I love it. It's, I love being spontaneous. I just changed the story from like, I have terrible executive functioning problems to I love being spontaneous, right? (laughs) And so I think just meeting ourselves right where we are, that really is. And it's taken me three full years of coaching to really come to this place where I feel like I'm getting so much better at accepting who I really am and where I am right now. And that will change every day, every month, every year. And right now this is going to be the good old days. So might as well meet myself right here and learn to enjoy the journey.
0: I love that. Like just, again, if you take one thing away, that piece of just the practice of trying to accept yourself. I actually did a podcast episode, if anybody hasn't listened to it, about radical self-acceptance of like, just what if you went through your day and decided every single thing you were doing was right. Instead of what we do is going through our day and thinking, well, maybe I didn't do that quite right. Maybe that should be better. Maybe somebody else would do that better. And just deciding you're totally great as you are and everything you're doing is great. That sounds like the best podcast episode ever. I'm going to have to go listen (laughs) to that. My little boy, he's
2: eight and they have, there's this challenge or something on YouTube that kids watch that's like, what if your parents can't say no in a whole day? They have to say yes the whole day. And so he he tests us with that and we play until of course he hits a boundary where we clearly can't say yes. But I think that reminds me of like a fun, silly example of your radical self-acceptance, which is just like, I kind of have the idea that like, I get to tell myself that I'm a genius. I'm like delusionally positive about the, I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. It's so good I didn't book that flight. I'm a genius. I would have been stuck, right? And blah, blah, or whatever that thing is that like I'm blaming myself for, for not having done right. I'm like, what if that was really smart? What if that was the best thing ever, right? Like, Why not go through the day telling yourself that you're a genius for stepping down from medicine or from working full-time this whole time? You're so smart, right? because, and you tell yourself all the good things about it, right? You were so smart. You were so right. You make perfect sense at a minimum. If you can't tell yourself that you're a genius (laughs) or this was the best ever, Mm -hmm. you can at least always offer yourself, you make perfect sense, perfect sense. Even when you've overeaten, right? For your listeners, that would be something that they would should shame themselves for. You make perfect sense. Your brain was wired for sugar and dopamine and caffeine, and all the things. It makes perfect sense. There's nothing wrong with you at all. And the sooner we can tell the narrative, there's nothing actually has gone wrong with us, the sooner we start to create the things we want in our life.
1: Absolutely. Sarah, any last thoughts? Yeah, I'll pick up on that. I think going back to the body is really just noticing, do you think that your body lets you down or has betrayed you or isn't like sort of part of your team, right? Like, and what would it look like to like wonder, what if my body is actually, right? We're playing on the same team. We are a team, right? Without my body, I'm not going to make it very far, right? My mind, right? What if your body isn't betraying you? What if your body's not broken? right like what would it look like if you just explored the actual sensations you're having right without even sort of the label of like chronic illness or disease or cancer or arthritis or whatever it is it doesn't mean that it goes away but like would it give you a different experience of it and again not to get too i went through like a woo woo phase which is shocking i know but i'm not really <laughs> in it anymore but i i do like the idea of like what is the message here for me right? And maybe it's not always like, if it is for my own good, or if it is a positive message, or if there is some gift here, right? What is the message, right? What if it's like a friend, my body's my friend trying to like, share something important, what might that be? Right? And you might notice, oh, when I don't get enough sleep, my symptoms flare, huh? Maybe the message there is that I actually really need to prioritize my sleep, right? Same with like eating. You might notice that eating certain foods, right? You feel better. Your body feels better. It may not make it go away. But like that idea of like investigating with curiosity as a team, as a partner with your body, um, right? Because it's not like we're going to get a different one. I mean, unless we get bionic <laughs> or something, but right? <laughs> yeah. So for me, I think really the idea of like, what if nothing's gone wrong here, right? And what if we are on the same team? What if my body's not broken? What if it hasn't betrayed me? What then?
0: Yeah, I love that too. Because that's a common statement that people say is, like as doctors with illness say, I feel like my body betrayed me. And if you can just question that, I think that's really powerful. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me, guys, today. Can you
1: tell people where they can find you? Sure. This is Sarah. You can find me at saradill.com, S-A-R-A-D-I-L-L, no H, dot com, or on Facebook, although I'm not on Facebook as much as Sunny is. But if you find Sunny, you can find me.
2: (laughs) Okay, if you want to talk about buffering, like I'm on Facebook all the time. I'm a Facebook addict. See, nothing wrong with my brain. I just mean myself right where I am. I love Facebook. (laughs) I love all my people who are there. I see all my friends and I love it. I'm in love with it. Okay. (laughs) So my name is Sunny Smith and I'm Empowering Women Physicians is my program. And so you can find me at empoweringwomenphysicians.com, Empowering Women Physicians podcast, obviously their podcast listeners, if they're here listening to you, Facebook group. On Instagram, I actually just
0: use my name, Sunny Smith MD. So that's me. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, guys. This has been an awesome uh, opportunity to chat. Thank you. Such a pleasure. Thank you. All right. So much good information in that interview. I love hanging out with these two Physician Life coaches, uh, they have so much experience between the two of them and such lovely perspectives on life. And so I'm hoping that you got a lot of useful tips out of that interview. I'd love to hear what your takeaway points were. What was most helpful for you in this interview and how are you going to apply it to your life? Send me an email at info at weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca. I'd love to hear from you. I answer all the emails I get. And if you haven't already, if you could take the time to go to wherever you're listening to this episode and leave a review or leave a comment, it helps it get found. It helps other people who need this information find it. And this is particularly an episode that I think is very helpful for a lot of different physicians. And so if you could share the episode in areas where you think there are physicians that struggle with chronic health conditions. I think that could be really helpful and powerful to get the information out to people who need it. Right, thank you so much for listening, guys. I appreciate it. And we'll talk to you next week.